Building on a bachelor's and master's of computer science from the University of Haifa, our guest on today's episode, Ala Shaban, has held down a variety of roles across a variety of domains in tech. Along his journey, Ala has worked in domains like cancer detection using nanosensors, developer tools, and online gaming, holding down titles like software engineer, research engineer, teaching assistant, product manager, and director. He's also held down those titles for a variety of companies, large and small, including the likes of Microsoft and Riot Games. As if that isn't all enough, he has also co-founded a company, started a nonprofit, and started a magazine focused on hardware. These days, Ella is the director of product at Tube Science. We will be right back after our usual intro to hear how Ala Shaban has successfully made the leap from software engineering into product management, so be sure to stay tuned. You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Grant. Uh, my pleasure. Yeah, and I trust you are doing all right in L.A. I know uh, things have been a little bit crazy. We are still recording this, and it's, I almost feel like I'm a broken record with all my guests, but we are still recording in the midst of what is COVID-19 global pandemic, and I know you being in L.A., it's probably a little crazy there right now, but I hope you are okay. Yes, I'm okay, and yes, L.A. is spiking, uh, so we're all taking extra caution hopefully it'll get better and we get to a better place soon yeah and, and for our our listeners here ala came to me as a intro from shiri dora hakon who was an earlier guest on the show so it's always great to have referrals and i would encourage our listeners to take a moment and if you want to hear somebody on the show please do send them along but but enough about that ala i'd love to kick things off and by having you dive into those early days of what inspired you to get into tech and pursue that bachelor's and master's in computer science? Let me start from early in the beginning. I'm an 80s kid and I grew up in Haifa. It's the third largest city in Israel. And I also am part of a minority group there. Growing up, I got into very early consoles. My cousin had a Commodore 64 when tapes were still used as the way to load programs. And I got hooked. Being able to play games that showed up on a TV in color and you could control them was something that was novel in many ways and captured my attention as a kid. From there, I got a computer. My dad got me a computer, even though at the time people told him that this is a fad, it'll pass, it's not meant for kids. You're wasting like two months worth of wages to get this thing that you're going to throw away later or not going to be used. And I got hooked into that. I remember one of the first memories that I have is trying to figure out how to list the files in a folder because I wanted to run a game that I had, but I had no idea how to do that. 
And yet from being four years old and having that memory reminds me of how much curiosity computers have opened up for me. And so those were kind of the earliest days. And it's not really about computers. It's about what you can do with them that always fascinated me. It's that endless world of possibilities. Even if you can't do it today, it allows you to dream of what can be done. And I think eventually that is what led me to computer science, even though I had no idea what it meant. The only thing that I knew then is that I like to spend a lot of time on computers. So computer science, right? <laughs> I love that. So you hadn't, for instance, done much programming, like say in your teenage years or anything like that. You just had, you know, I think like me, like you know, the games were the hook, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I played more games and I wasn't a programmer before university. I had done like very basic things to help my sister play games on the computer without being able to type things or figure out all the things that I had spent a lot of hours trying to figure out. But that is the extent uh, by which I knew how to program. Throughout that period, though, I worked with a lot of programmers to try and get things done. Uh, and so I had that relationship of always understanding the importance of honing that skill and ability. So when you got to university then, I mean, were you right into computer science or thinking, hey, you know, you explored a few things and then you happened to like the programming side of it? Like, how did that come about once you were actually in, in university? So being a minority back home meant that you probably could go into one of 15 topics or 15 majors. And the reason is parents kind of push us to have a job that is well-paying. So we can have a type of future that they couldn't. For me, it was quite the simple decision because I didn't think about anything else. Most of what I wanted to do was around computers. My second choice was psychology because of my interest in people. But it wasn't a realistic option at the time because I really just thought about computers. Right. And so, so you dive in and you, you're, you start to learn programming. And so I'm curious then too, because you actually decide to then go and pursue a master's in computer science as well. And, you know, I think one of the questions we often get asked on the show or we see and, and dive into is why pursue a master's? What inspired you to then go get that next level of education as it relates to computer science? So for me, computer science isn't about programming. At least that's what I found out very early on. I call it computational thinking. And the mathematical side, the algorithmic side of computer science is the one that I find way more important than how you program. The programming language is just the language. And what you write, for what purpose, is the computational ideas and algorithms and theory that wind up feeding into it. The reason I went back to do my master's was, at the time, it was about 2007, 2008, I already found out that I didn't want to do software engineering long-term. And so looking for opportunities that are adjacent, the market crashed. And I thought to myself, okay, I don't want to keep doing what I'm doing now, so I will go and get my master's because it's the best thing I could do with my time and potentially open up opportunities for me to go and explore, whether it's in Israel or abroad. And so it was a very pragmatic choice. Ah, uh, gotcha. That makes sense. And and I mean, if I'm reading your profile right, it, it feels like while you were at university, both doing the undergrad and the uh, 
masters, you were also quite busy working, it seems, right? Both, I think you had some engineering work that you were doing and you also had started this magazine, uh, was it Hardware Hell or something like that, or Gamers Hell? I'm curious, you know, what were those early days like of, how were you thinking about your career and school at that point? I think you, you know, you mentioned there were some very pragmatic aspects to it, but what was emergent for you in terms of your longer term career at that point? Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned kind of gamers hell and hardware hell. I grew up in early computation days or computers days where even before the internet was a thing for most of the community around me, uh, it was a very hyper-local experience. So everything I knew growing up as a teenager was in my neighborhood, in my school, and I wasn't as exposed to the rest of what's around. And that's true for most of my generation. There's two moments that changed a lot of how I perceive going forward. And yeah, please do continue. Like, I'd love to hear what those moments were, because I, I think these these inflection points, which I think is what you're getting at, are often some of the really key parts to a career. So at the age of nine or 10, we moved to Germany. My dad got a scholarship to do his PhD in biology. So we all moved. And that moment, I realized that the world around you can change. There's nothing constant in life. Gender dynamics, safety in the streets, the type of responsibilities that you can be given, how you learn and what you learn. Everything was different than back home. And I realized that nothing has to be a certain way. So that was the most important thing that I think fed into the idea or the feeling that I always had, which is I like to think about the new, what can be, what's possible generally with technology, because that's where I thought the most rapid changes can happen. The others around Gamers Hell and Hardware Hell, I grew up on BBSs and early internet. I'm from the Napster generation. And I found a group of people that wanted to build this website. And I was a gamer. I played a lot of games. And so we founded this website that became one of the largest, if not the largest independent gaming website online. And that was an unbelievable experience. I went on to create Hardware Hell, which is the hardware spinoff of it. And the reason I did that was I needed to upgrade my computer. And my family is a very middle-class family, which couldn't afford really upgrading my computer all the time. And so I figured I can probably get that for free if I did this Hardware Hell thing. And I did. And then I was able to make it profitable, did all the business for it, started flying to you know Hanover to meet my advertisers, and build connections and networks within you know, companies that we used to send the different pieces of hardware, et cetera. And that was a business that was profitable for four or five years. And like, what age were you at that point? Because I think in looking at the timeline, that was while in school or near just graduated? This was before I went into university. So this was very much late teenager years. That must have been a little surreal to be out like getting advertisers in that as like, I don't know, a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old, right? Yeah, it felt like hustling. It felt like I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing or that I really didn't know how to do. So I was trying all the things. I had templates and I would A-B test emails and talk to people in different ways, convince people to volunteer on the website, both programmers and writers and graphic designers. I think all of them were either in Europe or the US. And so I would stay up for different time zones. It was a very exciting time because it was 
something that no one else I knew was doing. The real question is, is like, did you get the new computer? Oh, I got so much computer things that I had to sell some of them, or I wanted to sell some of them because it made me some side money too. Yeah, that's fantastic. What a, what a great way to pay for your hobby, I guess. <laughs> well, so, so then you go to Haifa, you, you get your schooling, we covered that part. I'm curious then, you know, you, you spend this time as a research engineer, and I would love to hear a little bit more about what inspired you to get into that field and what it was like working as a research engineer. The way I got into this, like many other things that I wound up in, was unexpected. I was working with a supervisor, fantastic supervisor in machine learning in University of Haifa, doing my master's. And she sent me to a conference on the intersection of kind of biotechnology and machine learning. And the last talk in that conference was this guy who I had never seen before. He's also from my community. And he was describing what they do in this research, in his research lab that sounded like science fiction. They created a technology where nanosensors can sniff cancer using breath molecules. And it involved biology and biophysics and chemical engineering and so many other things. And the talk was super inspiring. And I sat there and I just was so amazed that you can do that and that it's somebody from my community. And the last sentence he said, he, it was the last talk in the day, last sentence he said was, and we're looking for machine learning people for our research group. I went home, I looked into the research, looked him up, emailed him, and said that I'm interested in joining. He invites me to go talk to him day after. We have a lengthy conversation, and he asks me, when can I start? And I tell him, tomorrow. And he's like, cool, let's talk to your supervisor and see if we can make that happen. And we did. And now, were you studying machine learning at that point in time? Or was this a, uh, hey, I'm going to go figure it out because I want this job moment? <laughs> I was already in my machine learning research. I am fascinated by how humans learn or how learning happens. It's such a core aspect of what makes us a living creature. And yet we have so little insight on how we actually learn. A lot of the technologies back then and today, don't really mimic human learning. It mimics some form of learning, statistical learning. But I can show a human being, a kid, photos of cats and dogs, and within 20 photos of each, they can probably tell the difference. We need to feed an algorithm today, the most advanced algorithm today, thousands, if not millions of photos of each so they can actually differentiate. So there's clearly still a gap in that. And I find that fascinating. Yeah, for sure. Me too. It is It is truly one of the most fascinating areas in computer science to work on. Uh, well, so tell me a little bit more about that research. I mean, that must have been a little surreal then to like be in this area that is hardware, software, like machine learning, all of these things coming together. What was the actual like experience like for you as a research engineer? Over the years, what I found is everything feels normal after a while. The beginnings are always hyped. You learn all the things, you understand the magic sauce, you contribute with your expertise and knowledge and you involve all the researchers. And you know, we had such a diverse group of researchers coming from so many disciplines that we would feed off of the breakthroughs in each of our domains and see how they complement each other. So we were creating and living kind of 
a weekly or daily brainstorming and thinking how these things mesh together. It was fantastic. Some of the best people I've met, human beings, researchers, are from there. After a while, it becomes the thing you do, like most roles and jobs and experiences. If you are missing live conferences like I am, be sure to check out the new online series of conferences from Manning Publications called Live at Manning. As many of you know, Manning has been a great supporter of the show, offering free books and discounts for our listeners. We've teamed up with them as a media sponsor to spread the word on this new series. These conferences are free to attend, filled with talks from some really great tech experts, and streamed globally via Twitch. No travel needed. Next up in the Live at Manning series is a one-day event focused on women in tech. It is on October 13th, starting at 12 p.m. Eastern. This is your chance to hear from speakers like Cornelia Davis, who you heard here in episode 88, and Emily Robinson, who you heard here in episode 76. Plus, you can learn about topics like algorithmic engineering on large data sets and get the latest on virtual reality. Head over to developmentor.com slash womenintech, all one word, all lowercase, to find out more. In case you didn't catch that, there's going to be a link in your show notes. We'll see you there. I, I did some research work as well over the years. Like you said, it is so fascinating and there's so many brilliant people you get to work with. But but yeah, it, it is still a job at the end of the day. And, and I think this is where your career starts to take this inflection point and says, I'm going to go do something else. You know, you mentioned earlier, you, you recognize fairly early on that you know, you like computational thinking, but didn't necessarily care about the day-to-day -day of programming. And so you, I believe at this time, make this change from software engineering into program and product management. I believe this is where you go off to Microsoft. I would love to hear the details around that change. What inspired it? How did you prepare for it? How did you land that job in a role that you hadn't done before? All of those things. Because I imagine also, too, I think you're moving at this point, too. Yeah, everything you've mentioned. And it happened like most other opportunities in a way that I didn't predict or expect to happen. By the time I was starting to wrap up my research, or I could see the end, at that point, I realized that what I love doing is bringing ideas to life. That is what I love doing. It doesn't really matter the medium. But I knew that I'm super passionate about technology, and that's where my head is. And I wanted to combine both. At that time, I got connected through a friend of a friend to the grandfather of startups in Israel, Yossi Vardi. He is the investor behind ICQ way back when. And I got invited along with a friend to this, it's a camp for adults. I don't know how to describe it otherwise, where... 100 or 200 innovators from you know, tech, media, art, or creative industries come together. It's an invite-only thing. It's an unconference where everybody who attends are the ones preparing and scheduling and making kind of the content for it. There's no presentations or applause. It's just people doing things and spending time. And that group of people, especially the tech folks, are ones that are either have been invested in or related to Yossi in one way or another. And we spent three days with that group that I didn't know much about, but that was the biggest inflection point, I think, or biggest 
tipping point I had that threw me into where I am today. I think what you're describing is something, at least in the U.S. in the past, it was called like food camp. One of these on conferences was one of the original approaches to these. But yeah, please do tell. I want to. I want to hear more. You've got me on the edge of my seat right at the moment. Yes. So Yossi actually got the idea for Kinernet from Tim O'Reilly based on FooCamp. I go to this camp. I sign in. You start mingling with people that have sold startups for $25 million and others that made an exit a year before for $150 million. And you realize that you never even thought about being in a room with that type of group of people. And the interesting thing in that dynamic is that everybody is just human. Everybody's just a person. And you get to talk and ask questions and listen and answer and get to know each other and then play games together or do show and tell, have discussions about different topics as groups or individuals. It breaks this idea that it's a different class and that you have the access to learn more about it firsthand. It's also the place where I got to meet Tim O'Reilly and Craig from Craigslist, just hanging out over beer. And up until that moment, that was more of the things I see online rather than the things I see in real life while hanging out. But you also meet people that had synesthesia or, you know, artists doing portraits with food or someone who was on the intersection taking physical simulations, finding the most interesting moments in those simulations and then 3D printing them, things that you didn't see online at that point, and even if you did, you didn't have the back and forth with people to understand why and what got them there, and maybe the stories that they wouldn't share in blog posts or uh, with others. And that was a phenomenal experience, but it was also a, an experience where you felt like you didn't belong because I wasn't there because of a sold startup or because I was being invested in. It was because of me being in that minority group and wanting to find somebody who's entrepreneurial to join and learn from the experience and maybe contribute in a way. And so it's easy for the imposter syndrome to kick in and feel that I'm out of place, I'm there for the wrong reasons. And then I talked to this amazing PhD engineering manager at Microsoft, and she tells me, I get what you're saying, I understand your feelings, but everyone here started where you are right now. I still remember that moment because it changed something in my brain that I can be there if I want to. Everybody was in my shoes. Maybe the ways we got there are different, but I'm there now. She asked me if I was able to get an interview and get accepted to my dream job in Google, Facebook, Microsoft, or my dream startup. If they told me that there was an equally as talented person, maybe even slightly better than me, but they hired me because I was from that minority group. Would I take that opportunity? And I thought about it. And there's obviously reasons to say yes, and there's reasons to say no. And in the end, I said, yes, I would take that opportunity. And she said, I would take that opportunity too. As a woman in tech, you're here, take the opportunity. And that was a, an insightful moment of, you can feel that you don't deserve to be somewhere, but it really doesn't matter. You're there. That's so true. I think all of us have some aspect of that imposter syndrome hiding in. Like we can always think of reasons why we don't belong at a certain table. But, uh, you know, especially true, like how you're describing it. I think that's especially true these days. I, I know I've struggled with that too. I, I, 
I come from a small town that, you know, you didn't go do these things. You didn't leave, <laughs> you know, and that's always been a part of holding me back as well. Like, a, you know, coming from a certain class, coming from a certain background. Yeah. So from there to Microsoft, right? Yeah. I was going to say, is that where you met somebody who said then like come interview at Microsoft and no, not at all. So that's the fun thing about it. It's such a chain of events that wasn't expected. So I used to go to these things every year. It's once a year, three days at a time. And maybe the third year in, somebody from the camp who's an early stage investor comes down the elevator. I bump into him. He's like, I need you to meet this someone. And he introduces me to someone who is working in a volunteering institution that works with underrepresented kids tries to get them into tech and to form businesses. And he just introduces us. We become friends. And down the line, maybe two years later or a year later, I don't remember the exact timelines, but I'm looking for jobs outside of Israel to have an international experience. And I pass my resume to him. He tells me he has a friend of a friend in Microsoft. And maybe six months later, they email me. And that led to my job in Microsoft in the U.S., like you're programming still at this point day to day as the research engineer, right? But you you shift gears into program and product management. I'm curious, what was that like for you of making that leap out of software engineering and into program and product management? I co-founded a startup with Shiri around the time that I was finishing my master's. And that's how I got into the Kinernet camp. And I realized that that is what I want to do. I want to bring ideas to life. I care about the ideas, the problems we're trying to solve, not how we solve them. And to me, when I started learning more and more about what in the domain of engineering or computer science looks, what things look like that in the computer science and engineering world, product management came up. And to prepare for the interview, for the Microsoft interview, which was a 12-hour marathon, it's a different story, but I watched so many videos online about you know startup weekends and startup school and founders and co-founders and their stories, lean startup methodologies. And it wasn't specifically for the interviews. It's something that I had done prior, but became very helpful during the interview because I suddenly had the language and the framing that I needed to think like a product manager, even though I was doing some of it intuitively. And that actually played for my benefit in the interview where I can talk about these concepts and how I would apply them to the problems that they were surfacing as interview questions. And so that's the reason I got into product management. I wanted to solve human problems. I wanted to imagine the future. It wasn't as critical to me to be the hands-on keyboard that builds the pieces. Gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense. I love that. And so I'm curious, you know, what are some of the key skills in your mind to being successful as a product manager? It's a combination. So in my case, it's I'm a technical product manager. So as a technical product manager, you have to know your engineering. You have to know your computer science background because some things are not feasible. Some things are. You have to be able to talk to engineers in a way that gains their respect, at least for it to be effective. But the people aspect of it is as critical, if not more. Over time, I realized that tech is easy. It's still difficult, but we have engineers that are brilliant. And if you put smart and brilliant people together to solve a problem, a technical problem, they will solve it. 
the minute you get them to work together as groups or larger organizations, it becomes harder. Tech is easy. The people are hard. And that's where part of the product management role comes in, where you have to be able to bring people together, understand everybody's perspectives, distill what matters and what doesn't, set strategy that speaks to people, put in vision that inspires and drives the desire to solve the problems without you even being involved in them. And to me, that is a, an intersection of skills that I e didn't even realize I had. It's just things you start learning about yourself and developing over time. Many of those are just skills you have to keep honing. Yeah, it's always interesting when you realize you have some skills that you didn't even know you had. <laughs> That's often a, a game changer in a career, right? Because now you can combine a couple of different things. Whereas if you're only focused on one skill or one particular area, you often end up being uh, pigeonholed, if you will, or stuck later on if, if the world changes. Whereas if you can bring forward some other skills, uh, very much appreciate that. Yeah. So on that note, I had one manager who is an amazing, talented product manager, engineering manager, you name it. He's like this legendary, can do anything, everything that I met in Microsoft and was part of the group later on, the loop group. But we used to talk about the generalist, how we think of people who are generalists that like to do many things. And he had this idea of being a generalist is actually not good. What you want to be is a multi-specialist. And that started framing how I thought about my career. I got good at one thing. I got to the 80% of a certain role. Great. I'm going to go and do something else now, either broader scope or adjacent to my domain, and try and do that to the 80% and become a good enough of a specialist in that domain. And it turns out if you take that direction, those specialties or those specializations start connecting to one another and they feed each other. And that was a lesson that stuck with me. Yeah, it's, it's such an important lesson. I think especially in this day and age, I mean, I, it resonates a lot with me. That's how I've approached my own career uh, as well as how do you bring together a couple of skills where each individual skill isn't necessarily unique, but the combination of them is unique or at least, you know, in demand. You're at Microsoft. I think you go at a Riot Games. You're at two of these larger companies that have been pretty successful and you're doing product management. I would love to hear you reflect for a moment as to what are some of the key lessons you learned in doing product management over those years? I mean, I think you hit on some of the key skills. I'd love to hear some of the key lessons as well. What were some things that you learned while there? So at Microsoft, I learned a lot of the core product management skills, all of the customer engagements, all the stakeholder management, standing up and saying no to a lot of folks and explaining why. I also learned how to be more of a critical thinker, not just buying into the hype and finding the information that would change how we think about the product, what customers are saying, where the vision is driving us, taking a step back and asking what problems we're trying to solve, what is the future that we want to envision. And that was one of the key things as a product manager that I got. But at, at a later experience in Microsoft, I was part of a team that decided to do an experiment on psychotherapy. We brought in a leadership training company that is built from psychotherapists. And we decided to do an experiment of instead of having them go through their training with a set of leaders, we want them to apply that to 
our team. And that journey, that two or three year journey, wound up being one of the transformative moments in my career, both as a product manager or even as a human, because we focused on feelings and the underlying drivers that we have as humans, not in a theoretical way only, but in the day-to-day, how we interact with each other. Like we had a feelings meeting every Friday and we would only share how we felt showing up that week. And I realized that that's important because you want to ask your customer, your stakeholder, your peers, your engineers, your leaders, what is it that is driving their future thinking, their values, their vision, their pains. It is grounded first and foremost in feeling. And then there's the intellectualization part or the intellectual aspect, the mathematical aspect, the market aspect. But you start with feelings. I would love then to hear a little bit more. You know, we haven't talked about going over into the gaming space, but, you know, you go over to Riot Games, which, you know, has some pretty powerful titles and pretty awesome titles for for a gamer like you. They only had one game when I joined. It's a $1.5 billion game a year, but one game. So they have League of Legends, right? (laughs) At the time when you join. And, you know, I would love to hear a little bit more about what that experience was like. You took some of these lessons from Microsoft into Riot Games. What was that like to to switch now into the, the gaming world and being a product manager over there? I joined Riot to solve a very specific problem. We were already transitioning to ship multiple games in a short period of time, in the two to three year time frame, something that Riot has not done in 10 years. And we were transforming into a multi-studio company. I had never thought about joining a game company before. The product domains that I'm interested in are not games. And I didn't join Riot on a game team. I joined on the core platform group that allowed every game studio to ship games worldwide. And worldwide to us meant very different things. It both focused on Asia, Western world, Middle East, but mainly, or most complicated, is China. And we need to invent something that not only was able to run League of Legends, because we were transitioning to that platform to validate that we can launch for 100 million players worldwide, but we also needed to support the agility of many of the game studios in Riot. And so it was this complicated problem that needed inventing some technology for. What I learned there is an A-team, even if it's smaller, can do the unbelievable. And as long as you provide them the space, the structure, and you enable them to focus on the right problems, there's nothing that can stop you off doing amazing things. And Riot, from an engineering culture perspective, had some of the most unique characteristics that I've seen in any tech company. They were driven. They came every day to work to get things done. They loved games. Everybody in the company, give or take, loves games. I think we all, or many of us already didn't use the gamer tag. I personally didn't think of myself as a gamer at that point. I play a lot of games, but the idea of a gamer was already different in my mind. And that passion that people brought changed my perspective of what a company could look like. Before joining Riot, I thought to myself, fine, I'm going to go to a game company. You know, the caliber of talent can't be like Microsoft or Google or Amazon. And I realized that it's the opposite. People that are there, almost everybody has an offer from Google, Microsoft, Facebook, one of those at least. They're there because they love League of Legends. They're amazing at their skill. 
and they're super passionate about the game, Riot, or its future. And I realized then that passion or belief in what you're making can attract people that you never thought you could because they're passionate about what you're trying to bring into the world. You know, that's one of the things you often get at a smaller company as opposed to the bigger one. You certainly can find passionate people at a place like Microsoft, but you know, let's face it, when you're that big, you know, you're a little bit of a cog in in a machine, whereas going to smaller, perhaps more focused, uh, although, you know, if they're doing 1.5 <laughs> billion. That's... I mean, I didn't know this at the time, but Riot is a 3,000, 4,000 person company. And the engineering group is about 1,000 people at least. And so I came in thinking, oh, there's one game. Turns out this is a massive operation. And it was in the phase of growing as a company from an organizational point of view and being able to ship multiple games point of view and building a team that had over you know, 40, 50 people, I realized that you need to work on culture. You have to meet people where they are. So I think one more lesson that as a product manager, I absorbed over the years in multiple places is the idea of meeting people where they are so you can handhold them and taking them to where you want to be. Because if you just show people, here's where we need to go. Here is the future of space travel with augmented reality in VR. People cannot relate to that. But if you meet them where they are with the pains and struggles that they are living, you can now see the path from where they are to where you think we should go. And then you can test whether that's actually a future anyone wants. That made me empathize with my users, my customers, my whoever I'm serving because it's them that I'm solving problems for. Such good advice in there. I mean, starting to bring this home, you know, I mean, I, th I think one of the things we haven't really touched on is you, you've actually done a couple of startups or started, you know, you started, I mentioned you started a nonprofit, you started a company. I'd love to hear a little bit about like what inspired you to start up. For me, startups were a way to bring ideas to life. It's the same theme across the different years. And I wanted to take this idea that my friend had, that I believed had merit, and try and make it happen. And so that was the driver back then. The one that I co-founded more recently, and it's more of a, I would call it like a startup-y side project. I author courses to teach things that I've learned that I feel others could benefit from, whether it's in product management or how to learn how to program. And I realized that I was spending 50% of my time editing my content rather than recording it. And that felt like a waste of time. And so waste of time to me is one of the bigger drivers for solving a problem. I went about solving it in a way that works for me and realized that it works for others and took the prototype that I built and made it a product with a few folks that saw the problem too. Well, I can certainly relate to spending more time editing <laughs> than producing content as a podcast producer. So that's fantastic. I mean, and we'll be sure, of course, to link that up in the show notes. Kind of curious, bringing this home, maybe one or two questions. You know, I'd love to hear, you know, I often say on the show, jobs and careers aren't all sunshine and rainbows. And I don't always like to focus just on the negative, but I, I, I love to ask questions that highlight both the ups and the downs, because I think so often we just talk about the ups in a career, you know, and you, you've highlighted some really awesome things like being at that food camp or whatever it was called, similar to food camp and, you know, some of these great lessons from Ride and Microsoft. I'd love to hear a little bit like what's been challenging for you in, in terms of something you've had to overcome in your career or had to deal with that, 
you know, perhaps has made the journey uh, a bit more difficult than you had hoped? I think at every turn, there were very hard moments and challenges. At Microsoft, it was the feeling that you're lost in the beginning because there's so many people doing so many things and you don't really know what you could be doing differently. Every now and then you make a mistake and you disappoint people around you and it feels really bad and it sometimes limits your mobility or the upside that you could have. That feeling of lost is definitely something I think a lot of people experience at, at a big company for sure. At Microsoft, I definitely felt that I had to take my career in my own hands. And it took me a while to realize that because it's easy to feel lost. It's easy to feel that you are a drop in a massive machine that you're so far away from the grand decision-making that you feel so little. So that was a thing that you have to overcome and kind of see what impact you're driving. For so many millions, Like really, you are driving big impact. If you think about relative terms, that's what gets you lost. At Triad, I think I was doing something out of my comfort zone. I started leading larger organizations and having to deal with larger problems, organizational problems, people problems. And it's easy to feel that I have no idea what I'm doing. It felt like you could easily break teams or make them unhappy or not be thoughtful of people's careers. You now are managing people. And so the difficulty was really figuring out what you need to be doing better And luckily, Riot has a very deep feedback culture, so people will tell you what you need to be doing better. But it creates a daily pressure to be improving all the time, given that there's more responsibility. At FooCamp, I think the hard part was really the emotional aspect of feeling like an outsider, like I don't belong, uh, the imposter syndrome, like there's people around me that are massively successful, and I didn't do anything in my mind at the time that was unique in any way. And getting over that was important. In the startup days, like the first one, you have, you know, you wake up one day, you think this is the next big thing. The day after, you're thinking, wow, this like seven people are probably doing this in seven places and my idea just sucks and I'm getting the wrong feedback from people. So maybe I should quit. Yeah, the roller coaster, (laughs) the roller coaster of startup for sure. (laughs) I think in research, it's the, the mental capacity to press on because things are slow in research and it takes time to validate and double check. And when you're in clinical stages, every little thing has to be right. Otherwise, you have bad data. And so you start with a hype and then you get into this feeling of slowness that you have to or the grind that if you're not used to it, it can erode your kind of day-to-day motivation. As a TA, I think being wrong in front of a lot of people was challenging. People can call you out for this looks wrong. And then you're up there in front of 200 people. You're like, yeah, this is wrong. And you're thinking, shit, I screwed up in this magnificent way. Yeah, I think those are the main difficult moments. And there's many of them, many details. Like it's not rainbows. It's not sunshine. It's day to day, like going to work. I would put on music that gets me into the groove of battle. I'm going to tackle some hard things today and I know what they are and I need to be smart about them and thoughtful about them, but they are hard and I'm going to make some people unhappy and I need to make sure that they're they're unhappy for the right reasons 
And so there's a lot of that in almost every job. You're always serving someone, whether it's a customer or stakeholder or a team or research or funding. There's always someone, startup or not, company or not. You're never in, the, in a bubble that you can say, I'm my own boss. Nobody can tell me what to do. No, there's always somebody telling you what to do. <laughs> For sure. I mean, even when you have a C-level title, you certainly still have people telling you what to do. So I appreciate just the honesty and the vulnerability there, Al. I mean, there's a lot of uh, aspects that go into building a career. And I think, you know, you hit on some of the, the really challenging sides of that, which is it's all a complex and messy ball of mud sometimes <laughs> at the end of the day. It's been really great to have you on the show. I want to just end with one final question, which I ask everybody. So you mentioned this nonprofit, you know, we'll link up your LinkedIn, but where can our listeners best follow you and, and learn more about what you're up to these days? Most of my writing and sharing of things that I care about or think are valuable are on LinkedIn. So you can follow me there. Just look for Alashiban. And if you want to add me, just mention that you've heard this podcast that's the main place where I'm active. In the last few years, I haven't been volunteering and I realized that I needed to change something given the most recent Black Lives Matter events. And I couldn't just go back to my normal normal, even though normal is never really normal. And so I decided to start volunteering, teaching underrepresented kids, or I don't want to mention the details. I went back to volunteering and I realized that the group I'm with still taught like it was in the 90s the way we learned programming then. And what motivated me to learn was always visual things. So I made a program that allows kids to learn programming in a much more visual way, straight in the browser. And I'm looking for folks to help build that up. It's on visualpython.dev. It's going to always be for free. And I'm looking to have more exercises and lessons. I want people to be able to go and start trying things out and be able to visually see the interaction with the world that shows up in the browser. And so if you're interested in teaching or creating examples or Python, check out visualpython.dev. It's in a very early stage. So just jump in, send me an email through that website, and we'll talk. Yeah, that's fantastic. And of course, for our listeners, we'll be sure to link those up in the show notes. Alice, so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Rand. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com slash support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S. All one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.